Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Well, this morning, I brought a guest with me. Uh, You may know him. His name is Nathaniel, but he has a very special magic trick, and I want you to watch it and enjoy. For my trick, I'm going to make the pom-pom go through the table. I'm going to make this pom-pom go through the table, okay? Three, two, one. Oh, I must have pushed a bit hard. See, the pom-pom is still here, but... Ah, the cup went through the table instead of the pom-pom. Amazing! (laughs) Thank you, Nathaniel. Well, this morning... We're going to learn a very important lesson about the difference between magic and a miracle. If you remember, kids, we had been studying in Kids Park about Saul, who was persecuting the Christians. He wasn't very nice, and he didn't like the Christians at all. And he would sometimes even go into their houses and just pull them out and put them in jail. And sometimes he would have them beaten. That was just not a very nice thing. Well, soon many of the the followers of Jesus, just to be safe, decided that they had to leave Jerusalem. And they traveled to another country. Wherever the followers went... They preached about Jesus. Just because they left their home in Jerusalem didn't mean that they still were excited about Jesus. So wherever they went, they told people about Jesus. And one of these Jesus followers was Philip. Philip was a very wise man, and he lived according to the Holy Spirit. He knew who Jesus was, and he let Jesus guide his life. He was a man who loved to tell others about Jesus. He'd been with the apostles, and he had performed many miracles to prove that the word of God about Jesus was true. So Philip traveled to Samaria. He left Jerusalem, traveled to Samaria, and even there he told the people about Jesus. Well, in the town of Samaria, there was a man named Simon, and he was a famous magician, and the Bible tells, says that he was a sorcerer. That's the name that they gave him. But a magician is what he really was. He did many, many magic tricks, and the people were just amazed. They even thought maybe he was a god. Can you imagine that anybody would think someone else was a god other than the god that we serve? Well, we know that a magic trick can be explained by anyone. But a miracle cannot be explained by science, 
and can only be done through the power of God. While many people accepted the teaching, teachings of Jesus and decided to be baptized. Even Simon the sorcerer was baptized. He was so taken up with, with uh, Philip's being able to perform miracles that he wanted to be like him. So he followed him everywhere and he watched him as he performed miracle after miracle. Well, the good news about the Samaritans spread all the way to the apostles in Jerusalem. And since many people didn't like the Samaritans, it was a very good thing that the apostles could finally understand that God wanted everyone, Jews and Samaritans both, to be one big part of God's family. Well, Peter and John were there in Samaria and Simon watched them and were amazed at the miracles they could perform. And all they had to do was put their hands on the believers and they would receive the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Simon was also filled with the Holy Spirit and was able to do these miracles because of the power of God. Well, again, Simon, or the sorcerer, watched Peter and John very carefully. And that's what he noticed, that as soon as he puts his hands on the believers, they would receive the Holy Spirit. And he thought, if I could only have that power, that kind of power, and just lay my hands on people and perform miracles like they can perform, I would be very happy. And you know what Simon decided to do? He decided, I can give you any amount of money that you want if you'll just give me that power. Well, do you think that Peter and John did that? No, they said. And they were not very happy with Simon. They said, the apostles have been given this power by Jesus. And how dare you think that anyone could buy what was only God's to give? No one, no one can buy the gift of God with money. So Peter told Simon that he must repent and ask God to forgive him. Well, Simon asked Peter and John to pray for him, and I do think he was forgiven. Peter and John continued to preach the gospel as they traveled from town to town until it was time for them to return to Jerusalem. They even talked to people about Jesus along the way. They were so excited about what Jesus could do in the lives of people that they couldn't stop talking about him. So wherever they were, they told people about the love of Jesus. And because of that, many new people had heard about Jesus and also became disciples. Good morning. The scripture reading today is from the book of Acts. Um, it's chapter 8, verses 9 through 25, and it can be found on page 751 of your pew Bible. Bible. 
Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that, had, that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized into the name of Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. After, that, they, had, after they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Good morning. Great to have everyone here today on this beautiful, hot, steamy day. I can see who likes it really hot and those of you who don't like it quite as hot or like it cooler by where you're sitting in the sanctuary because I know there's a big difference between the front and the back. But uh, praise God for air conditioning, huh? Well, uh, let's see. I've got a couple of things that I need to talk about here before we get into the sermon. Uh, I've had kind of a busy weekend. We, on uh, Friday afternoon, we, a number of us actually went down to our district conference. And uh, one of the big things that was happening, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, this church is part of what's called the Wesleyan denomination. And, uh, and our district for many years has been the Iowa-Minnesota district. In other words, all the churches in Iowa and Minnesota uh, get together and form kind of a conference. And uh, and, you know, we, it's been that way for quite some time, but many of you know that over the last couple of years, we have been talking about merging with another uh, district. And actually, on Saturday, we voted to do that very thing. And so we are now a part of the Northwest District, which is, uh, let's see if I can get it all, Iowa, Minnesota, North and South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, Washington, Port, uh, uh, Washington, Oregon, and Alaska. So we're a part of a very big district. And the thing about it is, is probably you won't notice any difference here. So, <laughs> uh, but uh, when, we, uh, when we go out to Rapid City for district conference and to San Diego for pastor's conference, uh, 
we will notice a difference. But anyway, that was something that, uh, something that happened this weekend. Something else that I think for us is even more important, and John alluded to it a little bit in his prayer, uh, Abby Berg uh, had her ordination affirmed by the Wesleyan denomination. <clears throat> now, basically what that means is uh, Abby came to us from the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination, which is a denomination that does not ordain women, uh, but she had the equivalent of ordination, and so she just had to take some Wesleyan-specific classes, and then the Wesleyan Church, because we have historically, right from the beginning, ordained women, we recognized that, uh, that she is an ordained minister in the Wesleyan Church, and so from now on, you have to call her Reverend Abby. So... <laughs> Right. Or at least for today, just call her Reverend. Right? <laughs> All right, let's get into the message. Now, we are making our way through the book of Acts. And, uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about at the very beginning is that Acts is the sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Of course, Luke follows the, the uh, ministry of Jesus all the way through from birth until his death and then his resurrection and then his ascension. But after that, he continues the story in the book of Acts. And one of the things that we mentioned at the very beginning is that Luke actually organizes the book of Acts according to a statement that Jesus makes at the beginning of the book of Acts in Acts 1.8. <clears throat> when he says <clears throat> this to his disciples, he says, You will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses, and keep in mind this geography here, in Jerusalem, and all Judea, and Samaria, and even the ends of the earth. And Luke organizes the rest of the book according to that statement. So for instance, the very next story, we follow the disciples to Jerusalem, where the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and fills all of them. And then over the next several chapters, it talks about the church in Jerusalem. And they were just having a grand time, enjoying the fellowship, sharing everything, serving the poor, and all of that, uh, until last week when persecution forced the believers, except the apostles, to scatter out to different parts. They started to go to Judea and Samaria, and then we'll see later that they go to the ends of the earth. And as they traveled through each of those regions, they preached the gospel. They were Jesus' witnesses. Now, one of the disciples that goes out first, or at least that talks about going out first, was a man named Philip. Now, you might remember him from Church in the Park. Uh, was that last week or a couple of weeks ago? I think it was just last week, yeah. Uh, he was one of the Hellenistic Jews that was chosen by the church to take care of, to make sure that the distribution to widows was done fairly. Well, we found out last week that his elevation to a position of leadership actually did something inside of him, and he ended up acting less like a deacon and more like an apostle. And so the next story, we're following Philip into the region of Samaria as he carries the gospel to the Samaritans. Now, one of the things that you should know when you're reading the Bible is, is that any time you see... Uh, the Bible mentioned things like geography or ethnicity or nationality. That's a clue that you should stop and pay attention. That you should do a little bit of studying because uh, the truth of the matter is, is the biblical writers don't include those details just for uh, mere interest. They do it because they're critical to the meaning of the story because they are almost always represent some cultural or political details. And that's certainly true about the region of Samaria. 
the setting of today's story. Now, the history of Samaria is one that goes back centuries. See, after the time of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two kingdoms, Samaria in the north and Judah in the south. It was about in the 700s BC, though, that Assyria came and invaded the northern kingdom, invaded Samaria. And, and of course, they killed a lot of people, but actually what they did was they just came and settled a lot of their people there. And, uh, and they, so they settled with the Samaritans who remained. Now, in time, the Samaritans got pretty cozy with the Assyrians. And despite the prophet's warnings that getting cozy with the Assyrians would lead them into idol worship and, and immorality, they even started to intermarry with them. Well, whatever the prophets warned them about actually came true. And their religion became a patchwork of both Jewish religion and also pagan religion, which the Jews in the south, in Judah, saw as a betrayal of the people of God. Well, it started to come a little bit more to a head around 500 BC, which is about 200 years after that initial uh, attack by Assyria. Judah had also been taken into exile in Babylon, but they were allowed to come back in less than 100 years. And they were allowed to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and also their temple. Uh, and the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah talk about this rebuilding effort. Well, in the book of Ezra, which was written by Jews from the south, the Samaritans are introduced as the enemies of Judah. So you can tell that this rift is still going on. Uh, but, but when the Samaritans heard that the Jews were allowed to go back and to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. They were pretty interested in this and they thought, well, this might be an opportunity for us to sort of come back together and help with the rebuilding effort. But at that time, the feud was so bitter that the Jewish leadership said this from Ezra chapter 4, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord. And so this entrenched any feud that they had with the Samaritans, so, so much so that they even started to sabotage the work. In fact, they built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim in Samaria. Well, those animosities continued for the next 500 years through the time of Jesus. But we don't see the same animosity in Jesus himself. You see, he viewed the Jews as just as much an heir to God's blessing as the Samaritans. And that's why he had no trouble, for instance, talking to a Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. That's why he had no trouble telling a parable where the hero of the story was a Samaritan man. And what he was doing was he was challenging these old prejudices that had last, lasted for centuries. And now, true to Jesus' ministry, Luke tells this story of Philip going to Samaria. Let's take a look. Here's how Luke begins the story. In verse 9. Now, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. Now, I think it's significant to know that Philip was a Hellenistic Jew and that he was the first one to go to Samaria. I think you're, maybe you see the connection there, right? You see, given the history, Samaria wouldn't have been the preferred destination of the apostles who were all good, law-abiding uh, Jews. But Philip wasn't from Jerusalem, and he wasn't from Galilee. In fact, he wasn't from Judah at all. He was from somewhere in the Roman Empire. It doesn't really tell us where. 
but he wouldn't have had the same animosity toward the Samaritans that the apostles would. And so he went there really without any trouble. And it's there that we're introduced to a man named Simon, who Luke describes as someone who practiced sorcery. Now, later church tradition calls him Simon Magus, uh, which uh, is, is kind of like magi, uh, the magi that we see in the, in the story uh, of, of Jesus' birth. And uh, this, by the way, is we, where we get the word magic. So Simon was a magician. But magic at that time was something different than what we consider to be magic today. You see, today none of us believes that Nathaniel Hansen has some kind of special power to make cups go through tables. Well, I, maybe you do. I don't know. I guess I didn't really ask you. But uh, my guess is, is you understand that that was just a trick. It was, it was a trick of the eye. Um, but in ancient times, magic actually came as part of the pagan worldview. You see, in the, in the pagan world, the gods were not necessarily all-powerful. They were oftentimes just sort of like supernatural humans. And, but they could also be controlled or manipulated by certain things in the natural world. And so, for instance, pagans believed that you could control the gods or the spirit world with things like magic words and incantations and potions. And so, for instance, you can make it rain by doing a rain dance. You could put curses on people by repeating an incantation. So I guess if you wanted to define it, you could say that magic was something that was developed by pagan religions to give humans a sense of control of a world that was threatening and unpredictable. Now, this is very different from the biblical worldview. For instance, the Bible rejects the idea that we can control God in that way. Because the God of the Bible is not subject to the will of human beings. In fact, one of the great tasks of, uh, of getting to know God is learning to submit ourselves to the will of God who is beyond our ability to understand or manipulate. Now, of course, that doesn't keep us from trying, though, does it? In fact, one of the ways that Christians try to manipulate God is by how we pray. And this is why Jesus said in Matthew 6, verse 7, where he says, When you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. What Jesus is referring to there is, is this magic uh, sort of worldview. And you might say, well, I don't try to control God when I pray. Maybe you see other people do it, or actually maybe you do this. Like how often have you prayed and said the same thing in your prayer over and over and over again, only just using different words, just kind of varying them up, uh, or, or, or maybe um, trying to tell God how he should answer your prayer, right? Now, why, why do we do that, right? See, underlying that idea of saying more and more things the same, uh, in different ways is this idea that if I just use the exact right words, if I use the right religious words, or if I repeat Lord or Father or something like that enough, then God will, will listen to our prayer and finally he'll say, ah, oh, there you go, you got it, you cracked the code, and now I have to listen to you, right? Sometimes we have attitudes like that. But Jesus says that prayer isn't about trying to use magic words to be able to control God, you know, so God will answer it's about making your request known to your heavenly Father who loves you and will answer and do what is best according to his plan. And so in the Christian worldview, prayer is a way to bring ourselves into alignment with God. Back to Simon. Well, Simon seemed to be pretty good at magic, 
But we might ask the question, and this is something that Loretta talked about in the kid's story. Was the magic that he was doing really real? Did it really work? Well, there are a couple of ways to answer the question. I think modern people would probably uh, initially respond by saying, no, the magic wasn't real. They were just tricks. They were illusions like Chris Angel or Nathaniel Hansen would do today. (laughs) Simon set up illusions that amazed people who believed in pagan magic. They were gullible, and so that's what he did. And, of course, that, you know, is an option, certainly. But I think more likely is that the signs and wonders that he did were actually real. But he wasn't able to perform them because of the, the pagan system of magic worked, but he was doing them through the power of evil spirits. All right, so think about it, right? This is a good strategy for Satan. If he can keep people believing that magic works, he can keep people from believing in the true God that can't be manipulated. So I believe that the wonders and signs that he performed were actually real. All right, let's go on. Verse 9. He boasted that he was someone great, and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. Now what's happening here is that Simon loved the attention. And he used magic to grow his fame. In fact, it sounds like he probably made a pretty good living out of it as well, which makes sense. Because if you believe that you have the unique ability to be able to control the supernatural, it might have a tendency to go to your head. You start to believe your own press. But of course, earlier in the chapter, Luke tells us that Philip, well, he was able to do the same kinds of miracles, signs and wonders, just like the apostles, and and in fact, even better ones than, than Simon did. And so then watch what happens when they meet each other in verse 12. When the Samaritans believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. In other words, when the Samaritans saw the miracles that Philip was doing, they weren't quite so enamored with with, uh, Simon anymore. In fact, even Simon saw what Philip could do, and he was impressed. And so he believed, and he followed him around, trying to figure out how he was doing this. Right now, there's there's more debate here. There's more controversy in this passage, because there's been a centuries-long debate about whether Simon actually believed. See, a little bit later in the story, he does seem to repent, but he does so only kind of to, to save his skin. The, uh, the early church fathers have weighed in on this, uh, and writing more than 100 years afterwards, aren't, particular, aren't particularly sympathetic to Simon. Uh, one of the church fathers even calls him the father of all heresies. I think it was Irenaeus. And m- almost all of them write some pretty harsh things about Simon. It's also where we get the, the, uh, the derogatory word simony, which means to pay for uh, religious privileges, right? It's from Simon. Well, we were actually talking about this fact in the office, about the uh, early church fathers, and, and, uh, and Reverend Abbey said, uh, wow, imagine how awkward it would be if in the uh, uh, heavenly Starbucks, if uh, if." Simon actually did repent, and Irenaeus was sitting in there, and Simon walks in there, and, you know, Irenaeus would have a lot of explaining to do, right? (laughs) 
Also, by the way, in my opinion, if you find yourself in Starbucks in the afterlife, you might want to check and see if you're in the right place. <laughs> Starbucks always tastes burnt to me, right? Which would seem to indicate maybe that it's... <laughs> but I'm pretty sure that in heaven there's going to be caribou or probably like a, a local place that will be called something like Holy Grounds or something like that, right? All right, that's just a little bit of free advice. Verse 14, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. Now, the apostles would not have been the first ones to go to Samaria, but when they heard that the Samaritans were accepting the gospel, they thought, well, I think we need to go up there and check and see what's going on here, right? Uh, I can imagine their attitude, wait, wait a minute. The, the Samaritans are responding to the gospel? They're coming to Jesus? That can't be right. We better go up and check and see what's going on up there. Right? But sure enough, verse 15. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. All right, more controversy. Scholars debate this part of the passage as well. And most Christians believe that when someone receives Jesus, that they also receive the Holy Spirit at that moment. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. But that's not what happens here, right? So charismatic commentators oftentimes point to the fact that this proves that the Holy Spirit comes separately from communion when someone who has the Spirit lays hands on them. Okay, and to be fair, that is what happens in this passage here right? The problem is, is that's not really a pattern in the book of Acts. In fact, sometimes people receive the Holy Spirit right away when they believe. Sometimes they receive the Holy Spirit a little bit later. Sometimes it happens when someone lays hands on them. Sometimes it just happens and we don't really even know why. And, and so you can believe what you want about it, but the truth of the matter is, is that it's hard to make a hard and fast doctrine about when the Holy Spirit fills people by looking at the book of Acts because it's all over the place in its description. And I think really what this shows us is that the Holy Spirit is not magic. We cannot control or manipulate the Holy Spirit. It's almost like the Holy Spirit has a mind of its own. Of course, then we're still left with the question, why does the Holy Spirit do it this way in this particular instance? There's got to be some kind of a reason for it, right? Again, there's some kind of disagreement, but most every commentator that I read says in one way or another that it was to benefit the people who were involved. Okay? And there are really kind of two schools of thought here. See, some people say that the Spirit came this way because the Samaritans needed the affirmation that they were accepted by God after years of being ostracized by the Jews. This is what F.F. F. Bruce says. He says, It was one thing for them to be baptized by a freelance evangelist like Philip, but not until they had been acknowledged and welcomed by the leaders of the Jerusalem church did they experience the signs which confirmed and attested their membership in the spirit-possessed society. That sounds pretty good to me. But then there's another camp. And the other camp says that the Spirit did it this way not just because the Samaritans needed to be affirmed by the apostles, but because the apostles needed to see the Samaritans filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Willie Jennings says this, Disciples of Jesus must be convinced not only of God's love for the world, but also God's desire for people, especially people we have been taught not to desire. See, either way you look at it, both Samaritans and Jews needed to see the Holy Spirit working in the lives of Samaritans if they were ever going to come together as brothers and sisters in Christ under the same Heavenly Father, under the same Holy Spirit. If it wasn't for this supernatural work, then there would always be doubt about whether they all had the same Heavenly Father and the same Holy Spirit at work in them. Well, probably the greatest reason that the church didn't consider Simon's conversion to be real is that he seems to be stuck in the world of magic. Look at verse 18. When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying hands of the apostle, at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, and he said, "Give me also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." All right now, do you see what's happening here? See, Simon still believes that he can control and manipulate God. I mean, yes, he believes that Philip did signs and wonders that were even better than his own. And yes, he believed that the Holy Spirit was real and that Peter and, John's had laid, Peter and John had laid their hands on the Samaritans. But he didn't view God as a power that he needed to submit to, but as one that he could control for his own gain. And what's worse was he thought he could do that with money. But of course, Peter wasn't impressed. Verse 20. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then maybe this is where Simon's real conversion happened in verse 24. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Now notice that at this moment, he feels so out of control that he can't even pray this prayer himself. He asks the disciples to pray for him so that it wouldn't happen. And then finally in verse 25, we see what we might call the conversion of the apostles, the conversion of Peter and John, because look at what happens. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, and what did they do? Preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Ah, not only did Simon's heart change, but Peter and John's heart changed as well. Before, they would never have believed that the Samaritans had any place in the kingdom of God, but now they knew that God loves even Samaritans. All right, so what do we take away from the, from the passage? Let me suggest three things to you. First, I think we have to let this passage stretch us a little bit to believe that maybe God is working in the lives of people that we wouldn't expect him to work in or even people that we don't really want him to work in. Might there be someone like that for you? Now, you could think about this individually, for one, there might be someone in your life that hurt you. Maybe someone that continues to hurt you. Maybe someone you consider an enemy. How would you feel if you found out that they came to Jesus? 
Would you welcome them into the kingdom? Would it be an awkward moment if you met them in the heavenly caribou coffee? Or maybe it's not anyone in particular. Maybe it's a certain type of person, right? Maybe if you consider yourself a conservative, how would you feel about God loving a liberal? If you consider yourself a liberal, how would you feel about the Holy Spirit working in the life of a gun-toting, red-hat-wearing conservative? Is there any room in your theology for a person like that? Now, does that mean that what we believe doesn't matter? Of course it matters what we believe. But I think what this story does is it begs us to have a little bit of humility and allow us to admit that there might be some beliefs or some attitudes that even those of us who have been believers for a long time might need to change, that we might possibly get them wrong. And it's good to know, and it's good to study, and to hold firmly to doctrine and all of that, but we have to do so humbly, recognizing that Jesus didn't come to limit the number of people who are saved, but through his death and resurrection to throw open the doors of heaven to people that we maybe never thought could be saved. In fact, maybe that's you. Maybe you think you're the one who doesn't deserve it. Maybe you believe that you could never be accepted by God because you're not sure of all the doctrines of Christianity. Or maybe you believe that you've done too many bad things for God to forgive you. Or maybe you currently struggle with particular sins and you say, boy, I just don't know if God could forgive me. Well, I want you to know that whoever you are, whatever you've done in the past, whatever you struggle with now, that God loves you. Jesus died for you to show you that he wants a relationship with you and that there is no one beyond the reach of God's grace. Not Samaritans and not even you. Second, we have to be wary about the role that money can sometimes play, the influence that it has in our faith. Remember what Peter says when he rebukes Simon in verse 20? He says, may your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. The, uh, the South American commentator, Houston Gonzalez, great Christian historian, uh, points out that throughout history, there always is a temptation to favor the rich over the poor. They tend to get on boards. They tend to get recognized more readily when, when, you're poor than, or when you're rich than when you're poor. And this happens both in society and in the church. Rich people are often perceived to be of higher character and to have more wisdom than poor people. And Gonzalez points this out in his own Latin churches. This is what he says. He says, sometimes we're so used to being few, to being marginalized, to being considered ignorant and sectarian, that when prestigious per person, uh, a prestigious person joins us, we imagine that this somehow increases our power or makes us better. Rather than challenging that person to understand the contrast between the power that he or she has in society and the power of the spirit, we give the impression that power in this society can be directly and automatically turned into power and authority in the church. Does this happen? You better believe it. I mean, we do this when a celebrity becomes a Christian, right? We make them the, the face of Christianity in America. And I think it's a natural, a human, maybe a fallen thing for us to favor people who have money over people who don't. But of course, this is contrary to the gospel. 
Because Peter says that the Holy Spirit cannot be bought. And this isn't just true about individuals, it's also true about whole parts of the Christian church. For instance, the American church, which has wielded a great amount of power and influence over Christianity and the rest of the world for a very long time. We send out missionaries and we teach them. And there's an assumption that wealth and power and rightness go together. But actually, power can keep us from being able to see clearly. And that's why not only did the Samaritans need to be converted, in a sense, so did the apostles. And when Americans send missionaries to the rest of the world, we need to listen and learn as well. Finally, maybe most importantly, this passage is a warning for us not to treat our faith like magic. Okay, like we learned earlier, magic, a magic view of the world is the belief that we can somehow control God. By the way, this is something that modern science and old-fashioned magic have in common. They're both attempts to control the world and make it submit to our desires. But spiritual growth is not the process of trying to control, the, uh, trying to control God. It's the process of learning to submit to God. It's to keep him in his rightful place and us in our rightful place. You know, the book of Acts is not really the Acts of the Apostles as it's somehow, sometimes called. It's the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I hope what you've seen so far in the book of Acts and what I can tell you you will see during the rest of the book of Acts is that we cannot control the work of the Holy Spirit. There is no formula for getting the Holy Spirit to work, to do what we want. And in fact, that's not even why the Holy Spirit is here. Uh, while we were at district conference over the weekend, our general superintendent, Wayne Schmidt, gave a message, and in it he reminded us that the Holy Spirit will empower us to accomplish God's purpose, and God's purpose alone. He will not empower us to accomplish our own purpose. Unfortunately, for many Christians, faith is just the opposite of this. Okay, we use God to get what we want. We make deals with God. God, I will serve you if you do X, Y, or Z. Or something like prosperity gospel thinking is built on the belief that I, if I give enough money to the right person or to the church or to this evangelist, then God will bless me with more money. Or actually legalism is based on this same kind of principle. If I do all the right things and follow all the right rules, then God will have to accept me. It's all a way of trying to control God. See, but growing up in faith is about learning to tune into the Holy Spirit. To do it through prayer, through listening, through obedience, through community. And that's the scary part of faith for so many Christians because when you do that, when you are committed to listening to the Holy Spirit and committing to obeying, then you're a bit out of control. Because you don't really know what the Holy Spirit is going to say. But I pray that we can be a people that can listen to the Holy Spirit, who can relinquish the need for us to be able to control God, to learn to be able to submit to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story and other stories like it that remind us that we are not in control. 
As much as we would like to be, we are not. And so, God, I, I pray, really, for, for everyone who is here, or for anyone who's watching on the live stream, uh, that with these three points of, of application that we see in this story, God, first of all, that we would remember that there is no one who is too far gone. There is no one who is outside of the reach of your grace. And I think we might even be surprised when we get to heaven and we see someone there that we didn't expect. And it's all because of your expansive love and grace for them. God, I also pray that we wouldn't allow the, the dynamics of money and power and societal power to, to play a role within the church. God, I pray that we would be very careful in how we use money and how we, and how we use it to, to gain status in the church or in society, that that just wouldn't even be a factor in how we look at people and who we choose for leadership. And finally, God, I pray that for those of us who have a hard time letting go of control and allowing the Holy Spirit to, to do its work, God, I pray that you would Teach us what it means to submit to the Holy Spirit and to, to look for the places where the Holy Spirit is working, the lives that he is working to change and to transform. And that we would be willing, no matter who it is, even if it's someone that we once considered our enemies, may we understand that your grace is enough for even them. So God, Thank you again for the way you challenge us, the way you challenge our assumptions and our prejudices and the sins that we so easily fall into. And I pray that through this that you would change us and we would become more and more the church that submits to you and to your will. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.